You're listening to the Data Point podcast, brought to you by The Hindu. I'm your host, Sonika Loganathan. shooting in U.S. history has happened. It happened last night at an outdoor country music festival on the Las Vegas Strip. Now to Buffalo, New York, where police officials are discussing a mass shooting that happened in a supermarket. Authorities on the scene of a deadly shooting at a 4th of July parade in Highland Park, Illinois. Shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. On May 24th at 11.28 a.m., a gunman entered Robb Elementary School in the small town of Uvalde in Texas and carried out the deadliest school shooting the United States has seen in a decade. A little over an hour later, the 18-year-old gunman was fatally shot by border control officers, but he had already managed to kill 19 students, two teachers, and injure over a dozen others. Suddenly, Uvalde was another victim of America's disturbing gun violence epidemic. Nora News is a producer at CNN. Her team arrived in Uvalde in the middle of the night, while the town was only just realizing what had happened. By the time the sun is coming up in this small neighborhood, we start to get the full picture of the community and the initial community response. I work for a morning show, so we were on air from 5 to 9 a.m. Eastern time, which is um, even earlier in Texas, and then we went for breakfast. My job is normally finding the best local breakfast place at mass shootings. Uh, it's a weird cognitive of dissonance. In Uvalde, as in many other places, it's normally at breakfast the first day that you start to really get a sense of the community and how the community is reacting. She said that at this point, gun violence isn't a question of if it will hit your community, but rather when. But that does little to comfort a grieving town. Just the shell-shocked nature of, of those first days is something I've seen over and over again at, at many different mass shootings, but especially in towns like Uvalde, where everyone knows each other. Everyone leaves their back doors unlocked. It's a very big family. And so it just was, it's just the sense of your community being pierced and your sense of safety completely ripped away. And for the kids that we spoke to, a big part of that is that they'll never feel safe in school again. These children were with the gunman for over an hour, waiting for law enforcement to step in and stop him. One of those students was 11-year-old Mia Surio. Mia was scheduled to do an interview with my boss, who is a man. And I called uh, her parents to confirm the interview. And they said, 
you know, Mia is so traumatized by what she saw in that classroom. She was in one of the classrooms where most of the victims had, had been murdered. And she saw the shooter, heard him speak, saw him murder her teachers and friends. She's so traumatized that she does not want to see any men. She's scared of men that she doesn't know. So she wants to tell her story. She does not want to cancel this interview. She very much so wants to tell her story. But she only wants a lady reporter were the words that Mia was using. And I was the only woman on the team. I was the only woman on the team. So I went alone and interviewed Mia. She told me a lot. We spoke for a long time. But one of the details that stuck out to me and that ended up um, really sticking in, in the national consciousness was this fact that she survived by laying down on the floor and playing dead. And she put her hands in the pool of blood surrounding her friend's body and then smeared that blood all over her own body so that she could play dead and that, so that the shooter would think she was dead. And there was something about this image of an 11-year-old having the wherewithal to think to do this made worse then, unimaginably so, because it was already so bad, but then worse by the fact that then she laid on that floor for the 77 minutes it took for law enforcement to come and rescue her. And she was calling 911. She was calling 911 and speaking to a dispatcher. And she is unimaginably more traumatized because of the lack of police response in a situation that already would have been unimaginably traumatizing. Obviously, Uvalde is far from the first mass shooting incident in recent U.S. history. Just 10 days before the Uvalde shooting, a mass shooting in a predominantly Black community in Buffalo, New York, killed 10 people. Then on July 4th, seven people died when a gunman attacked an Independence Day parade in Highland Park, a suburb near Chicago. The Mother Jones mass shooting database revealed that the frequency of mass shootings has been on the rise, with rates spiking in 2017. But gun violence goes beyond the large-scale shootings that the media tends to cover. The Gun Violence Archive defines a mass shooting as an incident in which at least four people, not including the shooter, are injured or killed. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, over 45,000 people were killed in the United States in 2020 due to firearm-related incidents, with nearly 60% of those being gun suicides and about 40% being gun homicides. An analysis by Every Town for Gun Safety, an American nonprofit organization, found that the U.S. gun homicide rate is 26 times higher than that of other high-income countries. The Gun Violence Archive recorded at least 356 mass shootings so far this year through the first three weeks of July. But this issue isn't really about banning guns, but rather gun regulation. Why is it that after all of these tragedies, it seems as though little is done or can be done to stop it? At the core of the gun ownership debate is the Second Amendment of the United States' Constitution. It reads, quote, a well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms 
shall not be infringed, unquote. Gary Young, a sociology professor at the University of Manchester and the former editor-at-large at The Guardian, helped break down what this means and the history tied to it. At the very beginning, the ownership of guns was linked to the conquering of the land. You weren't going to be able to take the land from the Indians without your gun. Then uh, comes the anti-colonial fight between the, the settlers and the colonial power England. And that's where you get the Second Amendment from. The notion that you should be able to have a gun in order to defend yourself against a tyrannical state. The tyrannical state being the colonial power of England. So a well-regulated militia, and that is about defending the infant America from the incursion of the recently deposed colonial power. But throughout that time, of course, in order to maintain power and control over this country, which has been stolen from Native Americans, and where there are, in some places, more subject people than new citizens, the gun then takes on a new role. Now, it's not an official role, but it, it's pretty clear what the gun does in that situation, which is, you know, when they talk about a well-regulated militia and people's right to bear arms, they're not talking about slaves. They're not talking about Native Americans. So talk, that's white, white men, actually. All of which is to say it's not really possible to understand how America was settled and developed without looking at the kind of systems of control and the violence that's inherent in it. And the gun is central to that notion. Paradoxically and perversely, it's been adopted by the right as a symbol of liberation and of being free. But then the question then stands, who is free and who is subject? Even though it's been 246 years since America gained independence, a majority of Americans continue to support the right for private citizens to bear arms. However, nearly 75% of Americans now believe that gun violence is a big or moderately big problem, according to a survey conducted by the Pew Research Center last year. But the thought of having stricter gun laws doesn't give the same straightforward answers. Casey Wooten covers the House of Representatives for National Journal. He's been following the gun violence debate in Washington, and he says that gun ownership is really a cultural issue. It is a partisan issue. It's a Republican and a Democrat issue, but it's also a divide between urban and rural. You know, rural Americans are more, much more likely to own both gun, uh, own guns and be members of the Republican Party. Uh, you know, they see crime in other parts of the country and they're afraid for their safety. They're not affected by much of the gun crime in the cities, and they don't see a need to put limits on their guns. Uh, you know, in some ways, it's also sort of an Eastern U.S., Western U.S. divide. Uh, Americans, particularly in the Western part of the country, their lineage comes from, you know, people who came there when it was still a frontier. And there's still, you know, this sense of independence and rugged individualism and a skepticism of the government that remains in, in, in parts of the West. It's sort of ingrained in the culture there. Um, and, you know, there's perhaps a, a nostalgia for that, this, that sort of frontier mentality that, uh, that remains. And additionally, sort of the U.S. was sort of born out of a violent revolution, the Revolutionary War here in 1776. And rightly or not, that's part of the culture in some communities. And, and they sort of see that as 
their heritage and it's they see it as their right to own guns in case perhaps you know there needs to be some sort of a new revolution now an increasingly popular argument being made by republicans is that guns don't kill people people kill people while this argument presents obvious issues since people who shouldn't own guns can still get their hands on them it opens up the conversation into what kinds of people are carrying out these kinds of for lack of better term attention-seeking type of mass shootings, which really saw a start in 1999 at the Columbine High School shooting. I mean, Columbine was before social media, really, but still uh, at the heart of a kind of of a display culture, of a kind of a peacocking that was much more, that was much more public. It became a way primarily for very inadequate, mostly, not entirely, but inadequate young white men to make a name for themselves. Now, the truth is that most young men are inadequate in a range of ways. I mean, that's the nature of the business. And I, I mean, they're adequate to their age, they're, but they, um, the pressure of masculinity on young men will leave them feeling quite often less than rather than more than that it is, uh, I don't want to get too essentialist about it, but there is an element of proving yourself, earning your stripes, manning up. That's true for any racial group. When our mass shootings involving African-Americans, that takes place in a different kind of way. But the ones that you're talking about that we hear most about, which is school shootings, mall shootings, church shootings, that's generally white people, young white men. In the moment that we're in, with the pressures of social media, if you add that to the pressures of isolation during COVID and uh, an aggressive form of white nationalism that reached the White House and the, uh, an aggressive, almost claiming of male sexually, sexual inadequacy through the incel movement, that there are many ways to get there. So the gun didn't invent disaffected young men. It didn't invent disaffected white people. So the gun is not to blame for all of that, but to put on top of all of that Tinder the available, easily available use of a deadly weapon. And it's, you know, it's, it's no great surprise that we end up where we are. And the other thing to add to that is that this is a, uh, a wealthy Western country without socialized medicine, which means the biggest um, providers of mental health care in most states are the prisons. So there's also nowhere to seek redress if you're working class, certainly outside of the state. And by the state, I mean the incarceral state. Shootings driven by racist ideologies has become increasingly popular over the past few years. But Casey says this isn't a particularly new phenomena. Over the past, say, decade or so, we're seeing sort of this, this, this culture that's been you know, fomented online of these disaffected young uh, white men uh, that have just, it's becoming a breeding ground for these mass shooters when, you know, you have a, a, an individual who's already disturbed latching on to these ideologies and, and finding, you know, sort of a justification to act out violently. And so that's what we've seen in a lot of these incidents. Um, you know, this ideology centers around 
you know, the, the notion that the U.S. is becoming less diverse and less white and the position of privilege that, that, that whites have had in the society they perceive is, is vanishing. They call it, it the great replacement. Um, you know, it's, and their solution here is to lash out violently. Casey adds that this type of right-wing militancy really pushed itself to the forefront in 2017, when a right-wing group held a rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. The group was protesting the removal of a statue of a general from the Confederate States, the Confederacy referring to the group of states in the U.S. which supported owning slaves during the American Civil War era. These men marched through Charlottesville, carrying tiki torches, chanting, and many even wore and held Nazi slogans and symbols. Donald Trump was president at the time. Trump initially refused to condemn the protesters, saying, They showed up in Charlottesville to protest. They didn't let themselves down as you. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. But eventually had to condemn them due to the overwhelming amount of pressure he was facing. It really sort of marked a turning point where we saw a lot more visibility for these groups. While racism, xenophobia, and toxic masculinity fuel many of the shootings covered by mainstream media, Black Americans are disproportionately impacted by gun violence. According to Everytown for Gun Safety, Black people experience 10 times the gun homicides, 18 times the gun assault injuries, and nearly three times the fatal shootings by police of white Americans. Gary took a look at why this is in his book, Another Day in the Death of America. He said that in some of these predominantly black communities that he looked at, gun violence clearly showed itself in the way that a health epidemic would. When I did my book, most of the black kids who died, when I spoke to their friends, they knew other people who'd been shot dead. When I spoke to a uh, doctor on the south side of Chicago, she said that she had noticed people coming into her surgery with R.I.P. tattoos, you know, rest in peace, and psychosomatic illnesses. So she couldn't find anything wrong with them physiologically, but they weren't feeling well. But she said nearly all of them knew someone or several people who had been killed. Now, that produces a kind of epidemic problem because if you know people who've been killed, let's just say you're 18 or 19, and a few of your friends have been shot dead, you're less likely to worry about the fatal consequences of carrying a gun. You're more likely to carry a gun. You're less likely to practice safe sex. You're less likely to think about going to college. You're less likely to plan for your future. And you get a sense with the reporting of the mass shootings that the shooting shouldn't happen in places like this, which suggests subliminally, that there are places where you expect people to get shot dead and there are places where you don't. And the places where you expect people to get shot dead, they're poor and they're black and they're policed like occupied territories. Gary also explained that the heavy policing that black communities face worsens the problem. He said that if a community doesn't feel like the police are there to protect them, an alternative system of control develops, which his reporting found to be those who are running the drug economy. If you add to this the astronomical levels of incarceration, which the big increase starts under Bill Clinton and keeps going. 
people who are disenfranchised because they've been in prison, who can't get jobs because they've been in prison, and for whom the drug economy then becomes the only real way that they're going to kind of make money, then you can see how the gun becomes central to a kind of hunger game situation in which the kind of, so long as they're killing each other, the state's kind of really not that bothered. I mean, most people who are killed by guns, they tend to be poorer. Well, who's poor? African-Americans are, not all of them are poor, but they are overrepresented among the poor. That doesn't mean that all poor people use guns, but it does mean that you're more likely to die from gun violence if um, you are African-American. Before the gunman entered Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, he had purchased two AR-15-style rifles. That's the kind of gun that's meant to be used for war. This kind of rifle was used in several other deadly shootings, including the Las Vegas shooting in 2017 that killed 58 people, and the 2012 shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. Casey explained that banning this style of weapon wasn't always a partisan issue, but the image of assault weapons has changed over the years. There was a ban in place on them from 1994 to 2004. That 1994 bill was more broadly a crime, an anti-crime bill that increased penalties for various crimes and also included an assault weapons ban. And so that's how it was viewed. These assault weapons were viewed as a tool of the criminal. Um, but over the years, that changed. And, you know, perhaps through you know, activism from pro-gun groups, uh, perhaps through marketing from gun manufacturers. And it became sort of its own subculture uh, around these weapons. I mean, a lot of these uh, young men, they define their entire identity around around these weapons. You know, they, they wear t-shirts with them on, you know, their whole friend group is, is centered around uh, this, this hobby that they have where they collect and, and, and go to the range and shoot these weapons. Uh, and so it's, it's definitely the perception has changed. This, this culture around them has changed over the last 20 years or so. And right now, you know, I mean, there are around 20 million AR-15 style assault weapons in the U.S. Um, so Democrats, you know, they worked to pass an assault weapons ban for years. Uh, and there's actually a piece of legislation working through Congress right now that would ban them. But it needs 60 votes in the Senate. And there's a 50 Democrat, 50 Republican split in the U.S. Senate right now. And so the, vo the votes simply aren't there now. This is more of a messaging bill. We have a midterm elections coming up in November. And, and it, the, the likelihood of this bill passing just isn't, is, isn't very high. But with 20 million assault weapons circulating in America right now, Casey says a federal ban is an unpractical solution. Instead, he says there needs to be a cultural shift. People are going to have to want to give these voluntarily up because they just either don't see the utility in them or their perception of them has changed or simply it's just no longer become socially acceptable to be interested and active in, 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 you know, and own these types of weapons. Democrats want to begin placing restrictions, starting with assault weapons and then moving on to bans on high capacity magazines for pistols. And then on top of that, they're also pushing for more restrictions on the rules of purchasing, owning, and storing guns so that they're out of reach of people who shouldn't be able to get a hold of it, like thieves or children. 
But Casey says Republican senators simply won't sign on to any gun restriction if they think it'll hurt their chances at the ballot box. Still, following Uvalde, some progress was made when U.S. President Joe Biden signed the first major gun safety legislation passed by Congress in nearly 30 years. You know, I, I work on Capitol Hill. Uh, you know, it's, it's become sort of a routine whenever there are these mass shootings that we ask lawmakers, you know, are you ready to, to pass legislation? You know, what what will it take for for for, for you to support this bill? Um, you know, we get a lot of pushback. We get a lot of stonewalling. Um, but this time uh, there was movement. I mean, it's very pared down compared to what Democrats would probably want. Uh, but it's what can pass right now. And some of the details of that bill, you know, it doesn't ban any guns, but it does include incentives for states to pass, you know, some of these so-called red flag laws that will allow the court to remove weapons from people the court deems as a, a threat to themselves or others. And because a lot of these individuals who end up becoming mass shooters usually post hateful or threatening content on social media or exhibit suspicious behavior to their families, it makes it easier for courts to remove weapons from those households. It doesn't force states to do this, but it, it gives financial incentives for them to do so. That was part of the compromise. The Republicans didn't want to force states into, into enacting these laws. That's it for this week's episode, but I'll be back soon to break down the next big data story. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for The Data Point by The Hindu. Thanks for listening.